Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll dig into His Word. Father, again, we're grateful for the privilege of gathering together on the Lord's Day. The day our Lord rose from the dead, defeated the grave, and verified His own deity, solidified our salvation. The day that a new creation dawned, a new age began, and now it becomes for us on the Lord's Day a foretaste of glory to come. And we're thankful to be together this morning to worship. We're thankful to hear the Word. We're thankful to sit under the ministry of the Word, to take the sacraments together, to see the glory of Jesus visualized in the Lord's Supper. We're thankful to sing Your praises, to fellowship together, speak the Word to one another, see Christ in one another. In a word, Father, we're just so grateful for the various means of grace that You've given to us. We're just amazed that You have chosen to save a people like us. A people who have broken every law, have despised You, hated You, ran from You, violated Your law, incurred Your justice, aroused Your holiness, deserve Your wrath, and yet You give us grace upon grace upon grace by means of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're thankful for that. And now as we open the Scripture this morning, we pray that You would meet with us. We pray that You would help us to understand Your Word, to hear from heaven. This is the Word of God in the midst of a perverse generation where people can't figure out anything. They don't know anything about gender, anything about anything. There's no truth. Just all making it up. Your truth, my truth. We have absolute truth from heaven in the Scripture, from God, and we're thankful. Lord. Now help us to understand it, to love it, delight in it, and keep us in the path of righteousness. For Your glory we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We are in the midst of a study of this wonderful little epistle written by the Apostle John from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor for the purpose of refuting the erroneous ideologies of the Gnostic heretics and upholding the truth for the genuine believers there. John writes as a series of tests. Right, We know the theme here is Christian assurance. The theme of 1 John is Christian assurance. John writes a series of tests by which we can determine if we are in the faith or not. By which we can distinguish between counterfeit Christianity and true biblical Christianity. By which we can have assurance of our salvation. Those three tests that John lays out over and over again are the doctrinal tests, the moral test, and the social test. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. That's John's message. In the opening four verses, John began with the doctrinal test. That is, the Christological test. The true Christian believes the truth about Jesus. John began by presenting uh, both distinct natures of Jesus. He highlighted the two distinct natures of Christ, namely His eternal deity and His historical humanity. That is to say, Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. But now, starting in verse 5 this morning, and going all the way into chapter 2, John transitions from the doctrinal test to the moral test. The doctrinal test to the moral test. And that's going to be the focus of our attention starting this morning. So with that said, let me read our text. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. And before you stop me and say, wait a minute, Jamie, are you going to get through all of that? Of course not, but we're going to try to get through some of it. So 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. John writes, 
This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There are two key words in this passage that give away its theme. Two key words. The first one is that word fellowship. Fellowship. It's used twice, once in verse 3 and once in verse 4. Or sorry, verses 6 and 7. And it was also used back in verses 3 and 4. It is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. And it refers, as I said last time, to communion, partnership, participation, sharing. This word conveys to us that believers share a common life together, a common divine life. That is, eternal life. Eternal life. According to verse 3, this fellowship is both with us, that is, with John, the apostles, and all Christians, and it's a fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a fellowship with God and a fellowship with the people of God. A fellowship with God and a fellowship with His people. As believers, we share a common life. We are joined to Christ. We are in union with the triune God. Or more simply, we are in a saving relationship with God through Christ. To be a Christian is to be in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You know, you probably have heard this before. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. You ever heard that? Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. That's not true. That's a false dichotomy. In reality, it's both. Christianity is both a religion and a relationship. It's a religion. In fact, it's the only true religion. You want to offend somebody, tell them there's only one religion by which any man can ever get to God, and it's the true Christian religion of the Scripture. Christianity is the true religion. In James chapter 1, verse 27, we read this. Pure and undefiled religion... Notice what the Bible says about the Christian faith. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So there is a true and undefiled religion and it consists in loving God and loving our neighbor. So that is to say, Christianity is a religion. It is a religion. However, it's also true that Christianity is much more than a mere religion. At the very heart of Christianity is a saving relationship with God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 17.3 we read this, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, salvation, eternal life, 
is knowing God through Jesus Christ. To be in a saving relationship with God through Christ. It is to be, in the words of 1 Corinthians 1.9, called into fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is to know God through Christ. So it doesn't matter if you know about God. It doesn't matter if you know facts about God. You could have the best theology in the world and yet miss it and go to hell. The question is, do you know God? Because that's what it is to be a, to be a Christian. Scripture clearly equates salvation with knowing God. And the flip side then is this. To not know God is to be unsaved. To know God is to be saved. To not know God is to be unsaved. In Galatians 4, listen to how Paul describes the state of the unconverted. Galatians 4 verse 8, Paul says this, However, at that time, that is, before you were converted, pre-conversion, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no God. Then in verse 9 he adds this, But now. That's one of the best phrases in Scripture, by the way. But now. It's one of the best words in the Bible. Apart from the but in the Bible, there would be no salvation. But now, implying a break with the past, post-conversion, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. In other words, to be unsaved is to not know God. To be saved is to know God and to be known by God. To be in a saving relationship with God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul informs us of who will be the objects of God's wrath. He's going to tell us who it is that's going to go to hell. In verse 7 he writes, that Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. To not obey the gospel is synonymous with not knowing God, which is synonymous with not being saved. Those who do not know God are unsaved, and if they die in that condition, they will be damned. So to be saved is to be in relationship with the triune God. Scripture is filled with examples of those who enjoyed this communion with God. Enjoyed, not just going through the religious ceremonial motions, but they really enjoyed fellowship with God. Perhaps the first in the Bible that we find post-fall, having an intimate communion with God is in Genesis 5.22 where it says Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. I hope they can write that on my tombstone. James 2.23 says Abraham was the friend of God. The friend of God. According to Exodus 33.11, Moses spoke with God face to face as a friend speaks with a friend. You come to the New Testament and you find Mary laying at the feet of Jesus listening to the words coming out of His mouth. Martha's working and cooking. Mary's just laying there amazed at Jesus. And Jesus says she chose the better thing. That is to say then, to be a believer, to be a Christian, is to be in a saving communion with Christ. A loving, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. Of course, the problem is that many who think that they are in this fellowship, in reality, are not. Many who think they're in a relationship with Christ, a saving communion with Christ, are deceived, bewitched. They are ignorant as to their true spiritual condition. We're all familiar with our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 7, right? Jesus 
says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and then I will tell them, Depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. You were never saved. So to be saved is to know Christ. To be unsaved is to not know Christ. And many who think they do know Him in reality do not. And in light of that fact, the question we should ask ourselves this morning is this. How do I know if I'm really in the fellowship? If there will be many people who stand before Christ on the day of judgment thinking they knew Him, only to find out that they did not, how do I know I'm any different? How do I know I'm a genuine believer? Well, the answer to that question is found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-2 to 2, 2. And the answer is this. You know you're in a saving relationship with God through Christ because a relationship with God changes our relationship with sin. A relationship with God changes a relationship with sin. How so? Three ways. In this passage, John presents three ways in which a saving relationship with God changes our relationship to sin. And as we work through these various ways, may we examine ourselves in the light of them so that we can be certain that we are indeed in the fellowship. So we'll look at the first way this morning and we'll look at the other two next week. So first of all, for my note takers, exhale for a minute. I'm going to break this down very simply for you, but it's going to come out very profoundly first. First of all, a saving relationship with God changes a relationship with sin because it produces a decreasing pattern of sin. A saving relationship with God changes a relationship with sin because it produces a decreasing pattern of sin. Let me simplify it. You could put it this way. Fellowship with God produces holiness. Fellowship with God produces holiness. Or you could just write the word holiness. To be in a saving relationship with God produces holiness. We see that in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. With me. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. This is the message we have heard from Him, John said. John, the, the we here, it's an apostolic we again. John and the other apostles, they were the ones who were eyewitnesses of His life and ministry. They were the ones who heard Him and saw Him and touched Him via the Incarnation. And when they saw Him and heard Him, they heard a message from Him. And John is about to summarize the content of that message. <clears throat> And he says, we got it from Him. We didn't make this up. This, John and the apostles didn't invent their message. Christianity is not based upon mythology. What happens is God Himself became a human being. He did miracles that authenticated His deity. He taught His apostles. He died and rose again. And then He commissioned them with this message. And John is about to summarize this divine message, this apostolic message message. Heard it from Christ, the incarnate Christ. But what is the message? It's a message from Him, from God. And He says, and we announce it to you. This is God's message to us this morning. This is the Word of God to us. And what is it? It's this. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The message is that God is light. What in the world does that mean? God is light. Obviously, it's a metaphor. 
It's a metaphor. The Bible often uses such metaphorical language when it talks about God. We just read in the Psalms a minute ago that God is my rock. Now, is God literally a rock? Of course not, right? That refers to the omnipotent strength of God. God is our strength, the psalmist says, right? So here John uses the metaphor of light. God is light. What does that mean? Let me see if I can help you here. Let me point to several passages in the Bible and and show you the way the Bible uses the word light to help you understand what John means here. I'm just going to read these to you. But there are several ways that the Bible refers to the word light. And the first way that I think is important for us this morning is that it refers often to the glory of God. Light is often used in Scripture with reference to the glory of God. Listen to what 1 Timothy 6.16 says. Paul tells Timothy that God is the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That's a reference to the light of His glory, that God dwells in the unapproachable light of His own glory. In Revelation 21.23, we read this about the new heavens and the new earth, or the new Jerusalem. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no no sun, because the glory of God will be the source of its light. So the light then often refers to the glory of God. In Acts chapter 9, we should be somewhat familiar with this chapter, we find Saul on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And what happens? Who does he encounter on the road to Damascus? The risen Christ. And listen to what Acts 9 says. It says that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And then he heard Jesus speak. What was that light that flashed around Paul? It was the light of the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. It was the light of His glory. And then in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. In other words, there, the light, God clothes Himself with light as with a cloak, that refers to His splendor and His majesty and His glory. God's glory is like a radiant light shining forth. So light often refers to glory. In Matthew 17, we read what we call the transfiguration. Jesus is on the mountain with the three apostles, and the text describes His glory this way. He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became white as light. So when the apostles get a glimpse of the heavenly glory of Jesus, what is it? It's in the form of light. So light refers to God's glory. But there's a second way that the Bible uses the word light. Often, the word light will refer to life in Scripture. Often, it refers to life. Listen to Psalm 36.9. The psalmist says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So the word life and light are used together. John 1.4 In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So yet again, the word life and light are joined together. And then one more time, John 8.12, Jesus says this. Jesus says that, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So life and light are often used together. And here, it refers to the life of God. It refers to the glorious life of God. But there's one more way the word light is used in Scripture that I think is relevant for us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And I think the Apostle Paul really gives us the best definition uh, for our context in 1 John. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8. Apostle Paul, starting in verse 8, writes this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 9 he tells us what the light is. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, the light refers to righteousness and truth. That's what it is. It's righteousness and truth. And if light is righteousness and truth, then what would darkness be? Darkness is the opposite of light. So darkness would be sin and falsehood. Light is righteousness and truth. Darkness is sin and falsehood. That's why he goes on and says... Verse 10, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So the deeds of darkness are evil deeds, shameful acts, things that ought not to be participated in, but exposed. It is sin. So light refers to the glorious life of God, characterized by righteousness and truth. Darkness refers to falsehood and sin. So what is John saying there? John is saying this. God is holy. God is holy. God, back to 1 John 1 again, God is righteous. God is true. God is a pure and holy being. And therefore, in Him, there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. You've got to love the, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament because they often use bad grammar. This is a double negative in the Greek. It's a double negative. It could literally be rendered this way. God is light, and in Him darkness, not none. Not none. Daniel Aiken says in English, this is bad grammar, but it makes for good theology. It makes for good theology. John is emphasizing the impeccable holiness of God. God is pure. God is righteous. God is holy. There is no sin and no falsehood in God at all. No, not none. Not none. That's not our song we sung earlier. That's no, not one. This is no, not none. There's no darkness in God at all. So God is righteous. God is true. No sin or falsehood in Him. Now, there are several logical implications to this. If God is holy, perfectly holy, there are several logical deductions to be made. Let me enumerate a few for you. First of all, if God is perfectly holy then He demands perfect holiness from us. If God is perfectly holy, He demands perfect holiness from us. 1 Peter 1, we read this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quote from the book of Leviticus. God's standard of holiness is one of absolute moral Perfection. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, Therefore you are to be perfect, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've got to be as good as God. That's what God demands. In Galatians 3.10, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. Have you kept the law perfectly? Me either. So guess what? If you're not in Christ, you're under a curse. You're damned. You're the enemy of God. The wrath of God abides on you because God demands perfect holiness. James 2.10 puts it even, even more tough for us. If anyone keeps the whole law, hey, that's pretty good, and stumbles at one point, that's not too bad. He's guilty of it all. If you keep the whole law and break one commandment, you're guilty. Because the law, they're not individual commandments. They're a, it's a body of law. To break one is to break the law and render yourself guilty in His sight. So God requires perfect holiness. But secondly, if God is perfectly holy, if God is perfectly holy, He must hate and punish all unholiness. If God is perfectly holy, He must hate and punish all unholiness. Exodus 34.7 says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's bad news for sinners, isn't it? bad news. Paul Washer puts it this way, the worst news the sinner can ever hear is that God is good. That's your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not COVID-19. Your biggest problem is not cultural Marxism. Your biggest problem is not the, the, treasure, the, the direction of our country. That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is this. God is holy. That's a big problem because we are unholy. That's a problem because we are not holy. We are unrighteous and guilty. All of us have defiled ourselves. We have become as one wearing filthy garments in His sight. Nothing in us inherently pleases God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look upon wickedness with faith. If God is perfectly holy, He hates and must punish all unholiness. So thirdly then, and a logical consequence of that, is that if God is perfectly holy, then we need His own holiness if we're going to stand before Him without being consumed in His wrath. We need His holiness. That's the only way any of us can ever be right with God. How can any of us stand before Him? How can any of us stand before the King of all the earth, the just judge of all the earth, who will not by any means leave the guilty unpunished if we're guilty. The only way is if we're robed in the garments of His righteousness. We're clothed with His holiness. Then we can stand perfect before Him. Of course, that comes for all believers. All who believe in the finished work of Jesus receive the gift of His righteousness. And we'll talk about that in more detail when we come to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But there's a fourth logical deduction to be made here from the reality of God's holiness. And it's the deduction that John makes in our text in verses 6 and 7. So look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What's John saying? Here's what John's saying. If you say that you have fellowship with God, you say you're a Christian, you say you're in Christ, you say you're in a saving communion with Christ, and yet you live habitually in the darkness of sin and falsehood, you lie. 
You're a liar. What do you lie about? You lie about being in the fellowship. You lie about knowing Him. You lie about your salvation. You've deceived yourself. Perhaps you've deceived others, but you will not and cannot deceive God. He knows those who are His. And those who name the name of the Lord must depart from iniquity. The evidence that you know Christ is that you're living in holiness. Living in holiness. He says those who walk in the darkness while claiming to know Him, they lie and do not practice the truth. You're not living according to the truth if that's you. You're living in a state of self-deception. You have an unwarranted assurance. The wicked often say to themselves, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They speak peace to their hearts and then sudden destruction comes upon them. And that's the horrific reality, isn't it? There are many people in our culture and perhaps even in our own church. This is what's so disturbing. Many people in our community, in our churches, who say they know Christ, who speak peace to their hearts, and who knows in an instant they may fall into hell under the wrath of God forever. That's the horrific reality. John Gill puts it this way. The amount of the message declared by the apostles was that God is light. That is, He's a pure and holy being. And that there is no darkness of sin or unholiness in Him. Wherefore, all such that pretend to communion with Him and live a sinful course of life are liars. They're liars. John's black and white. John doesn't... There's just not many gray areas if you read John. He's black and white. John says... You're either a liar or you're telling the truth. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. You're either living in holiness and truth or you're walking in sin and falsehood. Gil adds at the very end, only such have fellowship with Him and with His Son who live holy lives in conversation. If you're not living in holiness, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. That's what John says. Those who practice sin are not true believers. You ever heard that statement, we all live in sin? No, we don't. No Christian lives in sin. No Christian practices sin as the habitual pattern of his life. We remember those words from Matthew 7. I just alluded to them earlier. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, watch this, practice lawlessness. Those who do not know Christ are those who practice sin. Their life is marked by habitual sin. And they're not in the fellowship. True believers can not live in sin. Why? Why? Romans 6 answers the question. Let me read two verses from Romans 6. Paul says this, What shall we say then? He has written this glorious doctrinal treatise on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are made right with God by faith alone. Not works. Not law. Not ceremonialism. Not ritualism. So what are we going to say? He's... He's anticipating an objection from his opponent. His opponents are saying, Paul, you are an antinomian. You're against the law. You're turning God's grace into a license to sin. That's what you're doing, Paul. Paul says, what shall we say? 
Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. That's the strongest Greek negative Paul could have used. Absolutely not. No a thousand times. How could you ever come to such a foolish conclusion? Salvation by grace does not mean we can live in sin. Salvation by grace means we're freed from sin, not to sin. We're freed from sin, not to sin. Verse 2, May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? So Paul makes an assertion here. His assertion is that Christians have died to sin, and therefore they can no longer live in sin. They're dead to it. He goes on to say later in Romans 6 that we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been raised with Him. We're new creatures. We have new life. And the result of that is holiness. The practice of righteousness. True believers then cannot live in sin. They're united to the Lord. They have new hearts, new natures, new affections, principles of grace planted within them so they now love God and love His Word. And obedience is the result. We're in fellowship with a holy God. Think of the Think of the hypocrisy and inconsistency of that. To say you're in fellowship with a God who is light while living in darkness. To say that I am in a saving communion with a holy God and I live in unholy. That's an utter contradiction and an impossibility. In 1 John chapter 3, John's going to make this point even more clear. Go to chapter 3. A few pages to the right. Chapter 3. And I want to read verses 4 through 10 to you. Sobering words. And remember, this isn't just me. This is what John said. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. There's you a definition of sin. What is sin? Lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. That's what sin is. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. The Greek construction has the idea of continuous, going on in sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. If you are going on in a habitual pattern of sin, you do not know Christ. That's what John just said. Verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Wait a minute, aren't we all children of God? No. Those who practice sin are not children of God. They're children of their father, the devil. Verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin. No one... If you're a true Christian, can you practice sin? Not according to this verse. Again, the Greek construction is the idea of going on continuously in sin. Making it the habitual pattern of your life. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John makes it very clear. He speaks in unequivocal terms. The evidence that you're a child of God is that you no longer practice sin, you now practice righteousness. It's absolutely foolish to say that you're in fellowship with the Holy God and yet be unchanged. 
Paul Washer gave this illustration. I don't know if it's the best, but I think it works. His illustration was this. Imagine a person coming in late to a meeting. Maybe I, maybe I came in late this morning to preach, and you're like, you're the pastor. What are you doing? You're late. And I said, guys, I've got a good excuse. I promise. I was driving down this, you know, this three-second drive I have, driving down the street. My sermon notes flew out the window. I had to get out and pick them up. And when I did, a big, huge semi-truck smashed into me. And that's why I'm late. You would say, you're, you're out of your mind. If you was hit by a truck that big, you would be changed. You wouldn't be here all nice and dressed. You'd be somewhere in the ER or in the tombstone, under a tombstone, right? But now, what's bigger, Paul Washer says? A semi-truck or God? Do you think you can have an encounter with the living God and not be changed? That you can be in fellowship with a God who is light and holiness and yet live in unholiness? That is utter nonsense. Those who are really in Christ walk not in the darkness. But the flip side of that, of course, is verse 7. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, that is, if the pattern of our life is one of righteousness and holiness and truth, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's a glorious statement, isn't it? You can be cleansed of your sin. Forgiven. And the evidence that it's true is you now walk in the light of the holiness of God. If you live habitually in righteousness and truth, you can have assurance of your salvation. Calvin put it this way. John Calvin says, the sum of what is said is this, that since there is no union between light and darkness, can they go together? Can light and darkness coexist? What happens when you flip the light switch on, assuming you paid your electric bill? What happens? The darkness is gone. It dispels. The light eradicates it. Calvin says, Calvin says, what Union is there between light and darkness. There is a separation then between us and God as long as we walk in darkness. And that the fellowship which He mentions cannot exist except we also become pure and holy. Light and darkness do not coexist. Light gets rid of the darkness. If you're really in the light, you're going to know it because the darkness of sin and falsehood is increasingly being dispelled in your life and righteousness and truth is increasingly characterizing your life. But light and darkness cannot dwell together. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is no, not none. Right? None. There is no fellowship. God has no fellowship with those who are walking in darkness. You're not in the fellowship if you're living in sin. And so in the words of 2 Corinthians 7.1, we need to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Because that's the will of God for our lives, and that's the evidence you're really in the fellowship. By the way, it's important that you realize what John is not saying. What John is not saying. John is not saying that we get into the fellowship by means of holiness. He's saying that the evidence we are in the fellowship is holy. There's a world of difference there. It's the difference between salvation and damnation. It's the difference between the true biblical gospel and Roman Catholicism. It's the difference between biblical Christianity and erroneous Christianity. Spurgeon put it this way, Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. You get that? You don't clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. 
you come to Jesus in faith, but then He cleans you up. So holiness is not the means of our salvation, it's the evidence of our salvation. It's not the root of our salvation, it is the fruit of our salvation. It's not the meritorious cause, it is the inevitable result. If you are in a saving communion with a holy God, holiness now marks your life. It's the evidence, not the basis. We get that. We know we're made right with God not by our holiness, but His holiness. Not by our works, but His grace. Not by our effort, but His mercy. But because salvation encompasses more than justification, but also regeneration and sanctification, the evidence you're in the faith and in the fellowship is holiness. Hebrews 12.14, we've read this before. The writer of Hebrews exhorts his readers to pursue the sanctification, the holiness, the hagiosmos, the set apart from sin. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Only those growing in holiness have any grounds for assurance that they are saved. Calvin says God sanctifies all who are His. God makes holy all who belong to Him. So you have two kinds of people then. You have two kinds of people. First, you have those who say they are in the fellowship. They walk in the darkness of sin and falsehood and they do not really know Christ. They are liars. Then you have those who say they're in the fellowship. They walk in the light of God's holiness and truth and they are genuine believers. Which are you this morning? Which category do you fall in? Is your life marked by holiness? By righteousness? By obedience? By conformity to the image of Christ? If so, take heart. Be encouraged. You have reason to believe you're in the faith. Or is your life marked by sin and unrighteousness? falsehood. By the way, it's important to note this. I'm saving this mainly for next week, but I'm going I'm to be like John and give you a little glimmer of hope now, okay? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about, as I've said before, direction. We're not saying that Christians don't sin at all. It's not being sinless, it's sinning less. It's that God is at work in your heart so there is a decreasing pattern of sin and it continues on until we're perfected in glory. So do Christians sin? Of course. John's going to make that very clear in our next few verses. If you really want to look at the passage, you can say God is holy, man is not, Christ is the solution. That's the answer. But Christians do sin, but they don't live in it. It's not the dominant pattern of their life anymore. But again, the horrific reality is that there are perhaps even people in this room that might not know Christ. That if they die today, hell would consume. So brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Maybe you fancy yourself. You say, oh, I've, got, I've got years to go. I'll worry about that later. Jonathan Edwards preaches a fantastic sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Go listen to it. Fantastic sermon. Edwards points out that when the natural man fancies himself that perhaps he has, oh, he's got good health, and he's just, he has security. He says God has many ways to take a man in security and bring him to hell. A sudden car wreck on the way out of church, boom, you're in hell. A heart attack tonight in your sleep, a brain aneurysm, find out you got cancer next week. Someone breaks in your house and who knows, boom, you're in hell. You open your eyes and immediately you are consumed in the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, do not die in your sin. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? If your life is marked by sin, you are not. 
But if your life is marked by righteousness and truth, then you can have assurance. You say, I know I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I once was. God is at work in me. I love Him. His grace is transforming me. And I know I'm a Christian because not because of me, but because of the work of God in me. And if you come to the conclusion today that you're not in the faith, that you're, you look just like the rest of the world, you love what they love, you enjoy what they enjoy, the same values, the same everything. The only difference about you is that you go to church and say you're a Christian. You're not a Christian. And if that's you, please come talk with me today after the service. I would be glad to counsel you, to encourage you that you might leave this room knowing that you have eternal life. But come to Christ because He'll give you that life. So the first way that a relationship with God changes a relationship with sin is that it produces a decreasing pattern of sin. It produces holiness. Fellowship with God produces holiness. Of course, none of us, as I said, are perfectly holy. Even the greatest of saints have sin in them, right? Is there anyone here that's going to raise their hand and say, I haven't sinned? No, we're all sinful. The good news is, those who walk in the light, John says, the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. That's the good news. That Jesus died for sinners. The wrath of God that we deserve came crashing upon Him. He paid the penalty. He appeased God's justice. And now, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses those who walk in the light. And we know it because we walk in the light. We're made right with God by the work of Christ. There are two more ways that this fellowship with God changes our relationship to sin. And we'll wait to look at those next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we pursue holiness for our own assurance and for the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time of the Word. Your Word often corrects our erroneous thinking. It often stirs our affections. It often stirs us up by way of reminder. And what a wonderful reminder this morning that those who are really in the faith are changed. Their lives are no longer dominated by sin. But salvation is effectual. It doesn't leave the sinner in the state he was found, but it changes him. And we're thankful, Lord, that we've come to know You. That we've come to a saving communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're loved by the triune God and You work in us and save us and change us. And You who began the work in us, You will bring it to perfection at the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for that. I pray that each of us, including me this morning, Lord, each of us would examine ourselves in the light of this text and determine whether or not we're really in the faith. And if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ, my hope, my prayer, is that they would be stirred by this exhortation of John to run from their sin, flee to Christ, and find life and assurance in Him. Lord, thank You for meeting with us. Bless Your people. Help us to grow. And may You be glorified in us. To that end we pray. Amen.